Hi there, Duncan Green here uh, with a roundup of the week's posts on uh, From Poverty to Power. Short week, four posts this week because Monday was a holiday here in the UK. Uh, so I'll give you a little bit of time on each. Um, the first piece was uh, from a new initiative called Global Learning for Adaptive Management, funded by DFID and USAID, the British and American uh, aid, uh, aid um, uh, ministries. Um, and the aim of this is to spread and sharpen thinking and practice around adaptive management and avoid it, not, uh, avoid it becoming just a fad which appears, bubbles up and then just crashes and disappears. Um, and so the, the GLAM, as it's called, Global Learning for Adaptive Management, is trying to actually sort of develop the body of thinking and practice around this um, adaptive management uh, approach. Um, and the piece written by Ben Ramalingham of IDS and Lenny Wilde from the ODI is about uh, understanding rigor differently. What is adaptive rigor? What is the kind of rigor you need to seek when you can't? set out in advance everything you're intending to do and you're intending to learn and adapt and be flexible, but you can still be rigorous. Because what you've got to find a way to do is to distinguish between being adaptable and just being indecisive. You know, and this is finding a kind of rigor that can prove that that's what you're doing. Uh, ben and Lenny identify three factors, a sort of continuous learning approach where you don't do the classic aid project thing of doing all your thinking and learning at the beginning and the end and then not doing much of either in, in between. Um, making sure that whatever uh, evidence you're gathering is useful, practical and timely. Um, and strengthening the enabling environment for adaptive uh, management, primarily the funder environment. Making sure the funder puts things in place to encourage it rather than deter it. And then they asked people to vote on what needs to be strengthened because GLAM is just setting out and this was a bit of audience research. The response to the vote was interesting. People very much felt that it was the organization's own houses that needed to be put in order. Questions of leadership, culture um, in the aid organizations concerned were more important than having more toolkits, uh, more skills, more evidence. Um, it did feel a bit um, basic. There was some sort of traffic on tw Twitter saying this is a bit, you know, um, evaluation 101. But it is just early days for Glam, and I guess this is setting out a stall. And what will become, what will be interesting is what develops next in terms of the the development of the pro of the project, of which Oxfam is a part, I should say. Um, the second post of the week was from Brenda Combo um, uh, from the wonderfully named Africa is a Country blog. Um, and this was about the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, uh, which is spread and, and could become the biggest free trade, yeah, regional trade agreement uh, anywhere in the world if it uh, spreads to include the whole of Africa. Um, and Brenda Combo was arguing that, yeah, that you can see it in two ways. One is you can see it as a sort of triumph of the Pan-African ideal from the earliest days of, of decolonization. Or the other one is you can say, well, this is really a, a classic FTA, a sort of backdoor neoliberalism. And she, I think, she puts out both sides, but it seemed to me that she came down fairly strongly on the side that you know, she's very concerned about this free trade agreement and that it is a bit uh, slipping in some of the sort of liberalisation through the back door that other FTAs have been accused of. And what was nice to see Andrew Mould from the Economic Commission for Africa coming on and say, well, look, I'm one of the people you're talking about. I disagree. I think this is very much... Um, uh, following in the dream of a integrated, regionally integrated Africa and the, the, the continental FTA is a way of achieving that. 
So read it, make up your own mind. The next, uh, on Thursday, we had Pauline uh, Gurumpatsi um, from uh, a southern network of think tanks called Southern Voices. And they've been looking at development effectiveness, taking a look at the aid industry kind of from the south, if you like. Um, and she's pretty critical. So the kind of things she says, she looks at all the sort of a, the attempts to improve the quality of aid that have been going on for the last 20 years, all the different sort of meetings in Paris and Accra and all this kind of thing. And she says, you know, the analysis of aid principles is not thorough. Um, it's all terribly vague and it's not bringing people together. So a fairly sort of unimpressed by the state of the aid effectiveness, which we now call development effectiveness, which makes no sense to me at all. But anyway, the aid effectiveness project. And then the last one of the week, uh, Friday, was a post by an old friend of mine, Marcy Lopez-Levy, which I spotted on Open Democracy, another great uh, website. Um, and it's called How to Have Difficult Conversations. Um, and uh, she's sort of very interested in the psychology of uh, conversation and group dynamics. And she's trying to help people learn how to listen. And this is a vital skill for activists. And it's not one that all activists get. I see a lot of people still who mainly focus on being right and think that should be enough. Uh, who lecture people, harangue them, and then wonder why they're not getting through to them. And I think immigration is probably one of the, or, or possibly Brexit, these kind of very polarised issues where people basically just want to say, you're wrong, and this is why you're wrong, and here's another reason why you're wrong, and it doesn't work. Marcy is looking for a different approach to, um, to, to ways of, um, of listening, which actually build trust. Um, and she has some fantastic quotes. There's one particularly nice one from uh, a, a man called Viktor Frankl. Um, and if I can find it, hold on a minute. Let me just see if I can find it. Yes, here we go. And so he's a, a, a psychiatrist and Auschwitz survivor. And he has this wonderful quote, which Marcy puts up on a screen when she's doing her talk. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So it's the exact opposite of piling in with your rebuttals as soon as someone says something. It's actually being still, a bit like the Quakers who at the end of a talk don't applaud. They just sit and quietly think about what the speaker has said. It's very alarming if you're the speaker because it's total silence at the end of the talk. Um, but that's the kind of thing that, that Viktor Frankl's talking about. And I think it's a really interesting challenge to people who are trying to persuade other people to stop between the stimulus and the response and to be to slow down, to be self-aware, to monitor their own feelings. Marcy talks about you know, getting beneath your feelings when you hear people who you disagree with and thinking, what is the need that's, that's generating this anger? What is the need in me? And there's so much more to all this than just being right. And I think that's a, a great way to end the week. So this has been a, sort of the busiest week, in a sense, for Maria Fasio-Lince and the PowerShifts project. We've had two uh, contributors from Africa, another contributor from Argentina. Um, I think it's all shaping up very well, and I'm very happy with the kind of variety of views we're getting on the blog these days. I hope you are too. Have a good weekend.